Welcome to Nashville Anthems, dissecting 80s and 90s country music. I'm your host, Melton McMainerberry, and thank you for floating down this river with me. Thank you also to the Catfish for providing the theme music for this episode. On this podcast, we go wherever the music takes us as we look around us to see what exactly it is that makes 80s and 90s country music particularly work. Through close examination of the songs played on satellite radios, 80s and 90s country station, one at a time. Today, we bring our questions and probably not enough answers to Steve Warner's 1999 hit, Two Teardrops. So, if you haven't already, I hope you'll pause me now and give Two Teardrops a good close listen or two. And now, let's jump in. First, as always, we want to give credit where credit is due. Steve Warner released Two Teardrops in 1999 as the lead single from his album of the same name, his 15th studio album, if you can believe it. Steve Warner is perhaps best known as a legend of the 80s, and a legend he is, but the 90s were no insignificant part of his career. And you know, interestingly enough, we've covered Steve Warner now three times on this podcast, if you count Long Neck Bottle, and two of the three songs have been from the 90s, not the 80s. And that may have more to do with satellite radio's general preferences and what they play than with Warner's career arc, but at any rate, Two Teardrops was certainly one of Warner's last hits, at least at the time of this recording and his penultimate solo song to reach the top 20 on the country charts, going all the way to number two, beaten out by... Anybody want to take a guess? Tim McGraw, Please Remember Me, a very different song from this one for sure. Two streams passing on their ways to different oceans, perhaps. Well, anyway, Steve Warner being Steve Warner, in addition to singing lead vocals on Two Teardrops and, of course, playing guitar on it, he also produced the song and he co-wrote it. And I'm badly mistaken if he is not also singing all the harmony parts on this one. So so Warner is at least, what is that? Not just a triple threat, but about a quintuple threat? Something like that. Country Music's Prince, or Stevie Wonder, if you want. Hey, I write, produce, and perform Nashville anthems. Maybe I'm Country Music podcasting Steve Warner. Okay, yeah, maybe not. Oh, by the way, Warner's co-writer on this one, is another legend, bet you didn't see this one coming, songwriting and singing legend Bill Anderson co-wrote Two Teardrops with Steve Warner. So it's kind of like, okay, this song is going to be worth the deep dive just by virtue of its composers, if nothing else. So let's do that now. Let's get into some key features of this song that, at least to my ear, make it what it is. The first is something I ought to have one word for, but instead I've got about four Four related adjectives that I think describe two teardrops. The song is quiet. It's restrained. That's a word we've been talking about a lot lately, isn't it? It's mellow. And in all those things, it's steady. So instrumentally, the song can be described as acoustic. It's something we talked about as a defining feature, not just of Girls' Night Out, but of the Judds more generally. We called them acoustic with attitude. Well, The attitude may be a million miles from the Judd's sass, but the commitment to keeping those guitars unplugged is absolutely there. You've, in fact, got two acoustic rhythm guitars on this song, one pan to the left and one pan to the right, if you want to listen for it, presumably both played by Steve Warner himself, who's, of course, a legendary guitar player. 
So you know you're always going to get great guitar work on a Steve Warner track, if nothing else. There's actually some electric guitar on the track, basically some lead guitar that you hear in some places to fill vocal voids along with some pedal steel doing the same thing. But both are so echoey and distant that you hardly realize they're there. They kind of just blend into a somewhat hazy, dreamlike background that fits the pensive subject matter, similar to Neon Moon, actually, but not nearly as dominant in the mix as it was on Neon Moon. I could tell from the look on her face she didn't need me. So I drifted. The acoustic guitars really dominate the instrumental soundscape on two teardrops, and that's part of that quiet, restrained vibe that I'm talking about. Still, the component of that is the lack of strings. Did you notice that? That pedal steel and that echoey electric guitar in their roles as atmosphere producers really perform the function that strings otherwise would. That's because acoustic guitars as well as piano are great at attacking notes and chords, but poor at sustaining them. So if the song wanted that kind of dreamy atmosphere, strings would have been a natural choice for it. I mean, okay, ask yourself. I mean, it was 1999. If Lone Star had recorded two teardrops, do you think it would have had strings? Remember the strings on our last selection, early 80s country pop classic, Love in the First Degree? Almost felt like they were there as a matter of course, right? And I think the same would be true here if, in fact, the song had strings. So the fact that it doesn't feels like a deliberate choice to undramatize the vibe and keep it mellow, not melodramatic. Let's just round out the instruments, though, because they all contribute to this quiet, restrained, mellow vibe that Two Teardrops has. There's a fair amount of piano in this song. I mentioned it just a moment ago. It's an absolute clinic in light, accenting touches on piano. No big chords, no sassy blue nose, big glissandos, rolls, anything like that. Just tasty, tasteful little notes peppering the song, like bright, glistening dots, like, oh, I don't know, teardrops. I can tell he had a lot of. The percussion is also remarkably light. It's played with brushes, so you get that soft attack that just instantly dies, almost non-committal in its quality, barely there drums that, far from propelling the song, as we've heard on many songs, they feel more like they're just steadily floating along the stream of the song, along for the ride, if you will. Same for the bass guitar, just a very simple, basic bass guitar line. Are all bass guitar lines basic by definition? Hmm. Well, I don't know if they are or aren't, but this one certainly is basic. Just one five, one five, classic country stuff like we heard in The Devil Went Down to Georgia. Two teardrops floating down the river. Although that's about all these songs have in common. Or is it? All right, hold that thought. So, Instrumentally, I think if you don't necessarily listen closely, you might think this song was pretty sparse instrumentally. I mean, it kind of feels that way, right? But what you've really got are a lot of instruments with no sonic hole left unfilled, but with each instrument played simply and sparsely. Everyone is holding back, and it's a lot of people holding back, but when everyone does it, the hole still feels quiet and restrained, and Two Teardrops certainly does feel that way. 
This is an, at least a 90s country thing, though, as we've noticed. We see it almost every time. There are just a lot of instruments packed into these tracks. So it's that even a song that manages to feel spare, like this one, has a lot going on instrumentally. But the mellow vibe isn't all instrumental. The melody, too, contributes. There are a lot of sixths in the melody. We talked about these in an episode about another restrained song from, you guessed it, Vince Gill, an artist I had never really connected with Steve Warner in my mind before doing this podcast. But when you start looking for connected tissue among all this material, those two guys share DNA is pretty undeniable. But anyway, I'm talking about Pretty Little Adriana, which had a lot of both major sevenths, which Two Teardrops doesn't make great use of, and sixths, which it does. We've talked about how major sevenths are like melancholy chords, and Pretty Little Adriana was a melancholy song, but... And this is some nuance that I didn't bring out in that episode, but which comparing the songs is helping me see. But I wouldn't say Two Teardrops is really melancholy. It's pensive, sure, as we noted earlier, but it has a detached pensiveness that contrasts with the intimacy, lost though it may have been, of a song like Pretty Little Adriana, which was chock full of major sevenths. Sixths do something similar, but not quite the same. Again, some nuance I didn't pick up on before. Two Teardrops is a simple melody built around an F major scale. The two songs, Pretty Little Adriana and Two Teardrops, are in the same key, by the way. Both are in F. And the sixth of an F scale is the note D, this one right here. So in the song, you hear it right at the beginning. The very first note, as a matter of fact, is the sixth. It's a D over an F chord. When Warner sings two, two teardrops, that word two is a sixth. It's a motif in the song. You'll hear that pattern and those three notes, especially beginning the pattern on that sixth, you hear a lot in this song. But hear how the D kind of floats above the standard F triad. I propose that word, right? There's dissonance there. It's unsettling in some sense and in some way, but boy is it light dissonance. Part of that overall restrained feel of the song. A dissonance that isn't really leaned into. The sixth is like the least dissonant dissonant note you can add to a chord. Anything else is going to clash more. But the sixth is situated in the widest available gap, the gap between the fifth degree of the chord and back to the first degree above it. We talked about that gap in the I'll Try episode because by not going for the first degree with that big note and instead settling down at the fifth, Alan Jackson wasn't trying all that hard. But that gap is two and a half steps. Again, the widest in the chord. So the sixth is parked in the widest available spot. Not at all wedged in like a second or like the fourth that we talked about in the Crazy Over You episode. And the major seventh is parked in that same wide gap, actually, but it's much more dissonant sounding because it's only a half step from its nearest neighbor. The strongest chord degree, the first, whereas the sixth is a whole step away from its closest neighbor as I've argued, the weakest chord degree, the fifth. So the dissonance makes you think, but not hard. This isn't a song about deep thoughts, but about observations. The song is passive. Life is happening to the singer, not the other way around. Like an added sixth, it's out of the ordinary, not a normal day, a day that you may pause and consider, but not one in which you assert yourself in any meaningful way. Let's contrast Two Teardrops with Near Contemporary, a song we tackled a couple of episodes ago, Colin Ray's 1999 hit, I Can Still Feel You. 
I could still feel you was in your face, constantly making its presence felt, an assertive song to stick with the theme, loud and proud, not crafted, but mechanized, for better or for worse. I can still feel you just as close as skin every now and then. Remember, we said it really had two gears, right? First and fifth. I can still feel you. I can still feel you. Two teardrops, on the other hand, never gets big. It never shifts into fifth gear. Oh, the ocean's a little bit bigger tonight. It's not like it's in first the whole time either, but it's in the same gear the whole time, whatever gear that is. It's nothing if not steady in its intensity. It's maybe second gear or third, something in between. A song that, especially for 1999, was extraordinary for its steadfast dwelling in the ordinary. I mean, for example, there are no key changes, no big drum fills with cymbal crashes, none of that. Even the Thunder Rolls-esque water sound effects are quiet and tasteful in two teardrops. Understated. Notice this especially. Even after the last verse, the last verse, which is a little softer instrumentally and more poignant vocally than the rest of the verses, the song just goes right back to the same steady, mellow feel it had before when it goes back to the chorus. And we both wiped a teardrop from our face. Oh, the ocean's a little bit bigger tonight. If it was going to have a climax, that was definitely the place. But it's in a stream, not a waterfall. It just refuses to go there. In fact, maybe it's not second gear or third. Maybe it's more like neutral. This is a song about being carried along, right? Not a song about driving. And that gets us into the second key feature I want to get to. It's one that came up in our very first episode on how can I help you say goodbye. The idea of storytelling. That's the other point of contact with The Devil Went Down to Georgia that I hinted out earlier. The that and the bass line are about all those songs have in common, I admit. Because The Devil Went Down to Georgia's story was extraordinary, supernatural even, reading like a legend or a folktale. While, as we said, Two Teardrops is all about the ordinary, all about normal life and the progression thereof, for better or for worse. In that, it's much closer to How Can I Help You Say Goodbye, even if that lush, string-heavy song is pretty different instrumentally from Two Teardrops. But I mean, they're not really that different vocally. Both are in comfortable ranges for their singers. Warner's melody peaks at an F, which is on the high end for most men, but not for Steve Warner. And How Can I Help You, as discussed in that episode, peaks only a step and a half higher on a G-sharp, easy pickings for most women. More subjectively, perhaps, they are both approachable in their delivery. We talked about how Patty Loveless conveyed warm, personal intimacy with her delivery, a la Alan Jackson. Sitting with Mama, alone in her bedroom. And there's something easy and warm about Warner's delivery here, too. It's accessible, it's approachable, it's down to earth. It doesn't feel like a famous vocalist putting on a show, but rather like your dad telling a story. Old man sitting not ten feet away Just lost his wife and he said to me It's part of the immersively ordinary subject matter of this song. Because in both cases, the narrative is always small. It's relatable, it's contained, it's local. I mean, both narrate ordinary life events. Ordinary in the sense of being common, of being universal. 
How Can I Help You dealt with moving away, with breaking up. Two Teardrops also has breaking up, as well as getting married, and the two most common life events, the ones guaranteed for us all, birth and death, the latter of which also culminated How Can I Help You Say Goodbye. By the way, if you were looking for taxes in the list, flip back to the Lord Have Mercy on the Working Man episode. This is country music, right? And we do. So these are major life events, don't get me wrong. There's nothing minor about getting married or having a baby or losing a spouse by any means. But there's a sense in which they are all small. They're cosmic, at least not in a sense. They don't register on a wide scale. The world doesn't stop for your broken heart, right? That kind of smallness, that locality, that relatability is undeniably country music. We've seen the ordinary consistently exalted in our exploration of these 80s and 90s country music songs. In a word, both How Can I Help You Say Goodbye to Teardrops narrate stages of life. And this goes back to that steadiness I noted earlier as part of Two Teardrops' overall vibe. A major theme of Two Teardrops is something like fate. The song has a time-marches-on perspective on life, illustrated by these personified teardrops that witness various emotional moments in people's lives while participating in their own inexorable cycles to the ocean, out of the ocean, and inevitably back again. But it's not a struggle. This isn't the stone of Sisyphus. It's far more organic and passive. It's natural. Look at the verbs. What do these teardrops do? Well, they float. They drift. That's passive interaction with these streams and rivers they're in. They don't even paddle. Even when they make the decision to head back to the ocean, they catch a ride to the sea. Not, I rode to the sea, but I caught a ride to the sea. The idea is that there is already motion happening that is external, and I'm just joining it. I am being moved rather than moving myself, certainly rather than moving anything else. You can hear it in some of the descriptions of the people being observed, too. Things like soft blue eyes, not just blue eyes, soft blue eyes, implying delicacy, fragility, reactive rather than proactive, the opposite of assertive. What about in the last verse? What kind of room were the singer and this old man companion in? A waiting room. The most passive of rooms, a room named after the idea of being a passive participant in the passage of time. You're at your most powerless to influence your life at that point. You're in the waiting room, so there is no attempt even to pretend. You and everyone else knows you are simply waiting. Didn't Jerry Seinfeld do a bit about that at one point? Anyway, there's something old school about that, something conservative about that. I don't think I'm stretching it to see a rural connection via farming. Farmers being people proverbially known for having their fortunes highly subject to external forces and for having a necessarily resigned and submissive attitude about it. Don't miss, too, the lyrical changes between first and second chorus in this song. Shout out to listener DJ Jason Marsden, by the way, who wrote me a while back to talk about how lyrical tweaks in last choruses are one of his favorite things in country music. He was responding to the tweak in Travis Tritt's Lord Have Mercy on the Working Man, and he actually referenced a Steve Warner song as his favorite example of that phenomenon. Although Warner didn't write that specific song, that'd be Some Fools Never Learn, where the tables are turned in the final chorus, and the fool is no longer the singer. Well, anyway... 
That same Steve Warner does it here in a song he did write. The changes at the end of the chorus. The chorus is only sung twice in the song. Feels like more, doesn't it? It's only sung twice. The first time it ends with the tide goes out and the tide comes in. There's that inexorable natural cycle theme. And someday they will be teardrops again. There it is again. Released in a moment of pleasure or a moment of pain. Because that's real life, right? Then they drift on down and ride to the sea again. Drifting, riding, experiencing those cycles, aware of them, even relishing them. Certainly not foolish enough to try to fight them. All right, here are those same lines in the last chorus. The first one is the same. The tide goes out and the tide comes in. The next, a whole new circle of life begins. Uh, So now it's more explicit. It's not just that they will become teardrops again, as the previous chorus said, but that in doing so, they are participating in this larger circle of life. And cue the Lion King theme, right? The next line, where tears are a part of the pleasure and part of the pain. Again, explicit about what the previous chorus implied. Till they drift on down and ride to the sea again. And there's a really subtle change. Before, it was then they drift on down and ride to the sea again. And now it's till they drift on down and ride to the sea again. Hear it? The first may be talking about a one-time thing. It's not as clear. But by the end of the song, there is no more doubt. It's a recurring future, an inevitable cycle that you can count on. It's like, just wait. They'll drift on down and ride to the sea again. They always do. So Warner gives us some variety there. It's not huge. It's not the big twist of Some Fools Never Learn. That's not two teardrops at all. Two teardrops is a quiet, contained, small, local, in a sense, subtle treatment of life. Taking a second chorus to make a tiny shift toward clarification, but only a tiny shift. In a subject this relatable, we all know exactly what these teardrops are talking about, don't we? And with that... I see the ocean in view, so we're going to leave these two teardrops to float on without us. Because it's time to find out what song we'll be looking at on the next episode of Nashville Anthems. I'm going to pull up Satellite Radio's 80s and 90s country station right now and see what's playing. We have a classic of the 80s, the Oak Ridge Boys, Elvira. I look forward to getting into that with you in two weeks. In the meantime, you can write me at MeltonMcMainerberry at gmail.com. You can also follow Nashville Anthems on both Instagram and Facebook. And we'll cycle back through in two weeks. Thanks so much for listening. It's truly an honor. Bye for now. I'm going to go. I think I see the tide starting to come in.